God, it is here and only by the power of Christ that we can stand before you, that we can kneel before you, that we can speak to you in prayer. And so for that, we are grateful tonight. I'm thankful that we didn't have to try to figure out some way to come to you on our own. I am grateful because it never would have happened. I am grateful that you saw fit in your mercy and in your love and through the power and strength of Jesus Christ that you decided to work in our lives. I pray that we would see ourselves as um, dead to our sins, alive in Christ and only by your strength and power, and that we would look around and see a world of people that are dead in their sins and in need of Christ, and that there is nothing that we as individuals or as a church could do without the power of Christ. And there is nothing that we can do as a group to win them without you. And so we pray that as we even open your word tonight, that you would equip us from it, that you would teach us by it, and that you would hold us fast to it. And we will give you the praise and glory for it in your precious name. Amen. <clears throat> Look again tonight to the book of Ruth. And we are going to move into the second chapter tonight. Lord willing, we may even cover the whole chapter of Ruth tonight. Uh, we have taken two weeks so far, a couple weeks, to introduce the book of Ruth and go through the first chapter of the book. The first week we gave a lot, a lot of background from uh, the basis of Ruth. What time period was it written in? Well, it was written during the book of the Judges. And so we know that there were no kings. There was no formal government. They were guided by some men that were supposed to lead them, men and ladies that were supposed to lead them toward the power of God by the way of God. But the judges struggled with that. And so it was a place often of chaos. And then we found that on top of that, they, uh, the area of Israel that they were living in, that Naomi's family was living in, was brought into a famine by God's power, and you saw that it was by God's working. And so it is in that background that we were introduced to a woman named Naomi, and she went with her husband named Elimelech and her two sons to a land called Moab, away from God's promised land, where he had told them that he would bless them, and he had told them to stay. And so they went, and Elimelech's plan was to sojourn or travel and just wait until that famine was gone. And we know that Elimelech later died in the land of Moab. He left Naomi and her two sons, their two sons there in Moab. They eventually get married to uh, two women from Moab. And long story short, they get stuck there for 10 years. And we're not exactly sure why that is. If uh, they did not have the means to travel back to Bethlehem as a group, if maybe they had made a life for themselves in Moab, had the famine, uh, did the famine last that long? None of those things are really given to us. But we know, and we read last week, that at some point, Naomi finds out that the famine has ended. And we see that she still has her faith in God uh, because of the way that she speaks about it. She said that she had heard that God had visited the land of Israel where Bethlehem was and the famine had ended. So she attributes those things to God. So she still has 
a faith in her God. But it was revealed last week as we sort of studied through that, that her attitude toward her God had changed rooted in her circumstances. And we read at the end of chapter 1 last week that she says eventually she is overwhelmed by returning to Bethlehem. And remember the ladies, the men that came out (coughs) were looking at her and saying, is this Naomi? Where are her sons? Where is her husband? She doesn't look the same. She's been gone so long. What is wrong with her? And Naomi just overwhelmed. We said, imagine the emotions that Naomi had maybe as she walked back in to Bethlehem, seeing the places that her children maybe had played at one point, or places that she had spent time with Elimelech, her husband, and the brokenness and the emptiness of her heart as she entered back into a place that was familiar to her, but she entered back into it in unfamiliar circumstances. And so her heart was sort of hollow toward the events that had happened, but more than that, toward her God. In fact, we saw at the end of chapter 1, she uses the word Yahweh or the Lord. That's the covenant name for the Lord. She says, Yahweh, the Lord has led me back empty. Then she also goes on and even goes as far as to say the Lord, or she says, Shaddai, all-sufficient God, Yahweh, He has afflicted me. And we said last week that those words literally mean to do harm or evil toward. And so she all but accuses God of doing evil toward her. She says, God has forgotten me. He led me away full. He has brought me back empty. He has afflicted me. For some reason, he has seen fit to do this. And we saw she had no hope when she spoke to to, uh, Ruth and to Orpah. She said, if I got married today... And if I could immediately conceive and bear a son, you couldn't even wait around long enough for that son to grow up. So she tries to discourage them from coming with her. So she said, why would you follow me? My life is cursed. And in her bad attitude toward God, we mentioned this last week, in her bad attitude toward God, in her bitterness toward her God, incidentally, she turns or tries to turn others away from her God. And we said that we can do the same thing. When we enter into a circumstance and we don't deal with our hearts properly before God, we turn others away from Him. But in spite of all that, God was working in His power and in His providence. And we read this little glimmer of hope at the end of chapter 1 last week. And I'd like you to look there again. Chapter 1, the last verse, verse number 22. (coughs) It says, So Naomi returned... And Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. So they came from the distant land, a land that was full of actually enemies to their people, and they came home, and then notice the last phrase, in the beginning of barley harvest. And that sort of sets the scene. Whoever wrote the book of Ruth did an excellent job, exquisite job, if you want to say it that way under the leading of the Holy Spirit, how they guide you through this. They leave you with no hope in the hollow feeling of Naomi. And then there's this flash of hope sort of at the end of it. And I want to talk to you tonight about this from chapter 2. The title of the message or the topic of the message is A Turn Toward Hope. So we have had emptiness and bitterness and hopelessness. And now we have this turn toward Hope. In fact, the story sort of shifts and changes. So far, it's been mostly about 
Naomi with a little bit of dash of Ruth in there here and there. And now in verse number 1 of chapter 2, it's going to drastically shift characters. We're not going to hear about Naomi again till the very end of chapter 2 after it mentions her there in verse number 1. So let's look there. We're going to read a good portion of Scripture tonight, and then we're going to ask God to bless it for us. Look at verse number 1, if you would. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, that's a, that is an important fact. I'll stop as we go along, point some things out as we go. But look at verse number one. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth, <clears throat> the Moabitess, said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. So Ruth says, we need something to eat. We just got back in town. We don't own anything. Remember, all of the possession of the land and all of those different things died with Elimelech and his two sons. And so now they come back trying to start life anew in a way. They have nothing to their name. And Ruth says, let me go out and see what I can glean. We'll talk about why she was allowed to do that in a moment. Look at verse 3. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. That means she happened upon a field that, was belong, that belonged to Boaz, <clears throat> who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. So we get a little bit of an idea or a picture of what Boaz was like. How many of you have that kind of... Uh, interaction with your employer or employees. When he steps to his reapers and says, the Lord be with you, they say, the Lord bless you. And though we laugh at that a little, we should strive on our part to make our relationships like that. Look at what it says in verse 5. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, whose damsel is this? So evidently he sees Ruth. And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. And then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide there fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go, out, go thou after them. So now he is addressing her. We're going to see in a moment. He knows the story of Ruth, but immediately you see the respect and reverence that Moab had toward his workers and vice versa. You see the, the mercy and the grace that, that uh, Boaz had toward Ruth and he, what type of uh, integrity he had as a man. He says, stay here, draw from mine. Instead of trying to get his milk as much as he could out of it, he says, you take as much as you can from it. And then notice what he says. Have I not, in the middle of verse 9, have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? So in the middle of all of this, he establishes maybe the first workplace harassment policy somewhere along the way, and we snicker, that's a good thing. That's an important thing, and it shows us some of Boaz's character, because in this day and age, there was often uh, an abuse that would happen between workers of the field and those that were coming to, to beg or to glean, and there were uh, different things that we've done. They were known to be violent men, and he says, my workers are not like that. They will not do that. 
It says, And when thou art athirst, go into the vessels, and drink of that which the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, and bowed herself to the ground, and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. Look at verse 12. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Let's pray, ask the Lord to bless His Word, and we will finish out the rest of the chapter in a few moments, but we'll stop there and uh, try to gather some things ourselves. Lord, help us again as we open Your Word. Help us to see it for what You would like us to see. Help us to see Christ, and we'll praise You for it. In Your precious name, amen. And so as we picked up in this little bit, this little ray of hope, and I Pray tonight that that will be our mentality as we enter into this passage, that we will see God's rays of hope and grace in the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and we will then in turn look into our own lives to find the rays of hope that God places into our own lives because they are there. If you are a Christian tonight, if you are a believer of Christ, your life is only filled with the hope and promise of a life full of light in eternity. And He blesses us here even on this earth. We're down this way though. Sometimes if we do not feel that God is focused on us, we feel or we think that He has forgotten us. Let me read that again or help you think about it again. Sometimes we feel that if God is not focused on us, that we think that He has forgotten us. Now, it doesn't say that God actually does turn His focus away if we don't feel as though He is focused on us. Ever have those moments in life where you feel like you have gone a long time without direct movement of God in your life, without some certain blessing or whatever you may be looking for? And sometimes we try to define how God is trying to speak to us, don't we? If you uh, get a phone call, someone's trying to call you on your phone, it's not going to do you any good to look at someone else's phone. You have to look at your phone. If you're waiting for a text message on your phone and someone sends an email to your work computer, you're not going to get it there. And sometimes we look so focused on God's going to contact me this way, God's going to let me know, God's going to bless me in this way, that we miss what God is doing all around us. And in reality, that is what Naomi had had happen in her own life. Now, had she suffered? Yes. Had she had hardship? Yes. Had she gone through some of the darkest moments a human being could probably ever go through on her own? Yes. But it had turned her heart away from her God to the place that she believed that God, in a way, was against her. And often we think that God has forgotten, but God does not forget. God does not turn His back. God does not turn His focus from us. He is a personal God who loves and who guides in our lives. And if you look at the story of Naomi and Ruth, and even of Boaz, you see that God was consistently, constantly, and mercifully working in this family's life. It's easy on the outskirts to kind of look and say, well, what about all the bad things? Hopefully tonight we'll be able to shift our eyes just a little bit. Uh, If you ever look through 
binoculars or different things. I've been doing <coughs> some hunting the last few weeks. I have a set of binoculars that you, you try to look and where I'm hunting, there's a lot of underbrush and some different things. And so I have to change the focus on them. If I have the focus in one place, I can see all the brush 10, 15, 20 yards away from me and I can kind of shift a little bit and kind of look through all that and see 40, 50, 60 yards away. I couldn't see it when my focus was off. And sometimes it's the same way in our lives. We have our binoculars of life to our eyes, and we are so focused on one thing that we don't see God working in the big parts of life. I want you to look for a moment, if you would, and, and our mindset or idea tonight from this passage is going to be really simple. It's just, what can we learn from Boaz? What can we learn from Ruth? And what can we learn from the providence of God in their lives? Okay, so let's look at uh, Boaz first. and He's introduced to us in verse number one. The, the, the author sort of sidesteps just for a moment from the narrative and gives us a little detail about this man, Boaz. It says, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, <clears throat> and his name was Boaz. And so it tells us first that he was a kinsman of Naomi, he was related to Elimelech. That's going to be very important in just a few moments because in Israelites' family culture and structure, for example, if you came into great debt and, and you could not repay a debt and you were taken into bondage and to be sold, if you were to be bought back in your area, it had to be by your spread family. It had to be a kinsman of some sort. If you came up short in providing for your immediate family, you would most likely rely on distant family to provide for you. And if you found yourself in some sort of legal trouble, the one who could bond or in our minds bail or kind of take responsibility for that was family. And so we see that this man is a family member of Naomi. Therefore, he's a, a married family member in a way of Ruth. But notice what else it says about him. It says he's a mighty Man, The word there used for mighty is also used in the Old Testament to describe a warrior, a, a man of valor, a mighty man of valor. But it could also be used to describe a man of note or influence. And we're going to find that he is all of those things. He goes and he speaks to the men at the gate of the town. And he goes and he had influence with his servants. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of note. He is a mighty man. But notice it also tells us that he was wealthy. And that's a good thing in this story and circumstance too. So think about these things from Boaz. He was directly qualified to be able to save Naomi and Ruth because he was related. He was a mighty man of dignity and character. He was an influential man who could affect change or decisions. He was a wealthy man that could provide what was needed to them. We already said that he was a respected man. His servants, we saw in verse 4, they respected him. And you see for a moment a glimpse, a picture of not just Ruth's Redeemer, but our Redeemer in Jesus Christ, who is the only one qualified to redeem us from our sins, who is a mighty man of dignity and character and holiness, who is the only one who can influence change from our sinful ways. And though, yes, he is wealthy physically, he has the wealth to provide all that we need spiritually. So who is this Boaz. Imagine for a moment, if you would, we've kind of had these imagining sessions the last few weeks to try to help put ourselves into the story. Imagine that you're Ruth for a moment, and you're waking up in some brick, mortared, maybe stick or stone house somewhere 
far away from where you grew up, far away from your parents, far away from anything that you knew of. Things didn't sound the same. They don't smell the same. And Ruth wakes up on this particular morning and light's starting to creep through the window. And as she opens her eyes, it takes her a moment to realize she is hundreds of miles from home. And as she wakes up, what do we learn about Ruth? It says in verse number 2, and Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. She said unto her, Go, my daughter. So what we see something here about Ruth is that she asks to go to this field. She wants to glean. She wants to help. She wants to be a part of this. Verses 6 and 7 explain a little bit more about her. Look, look at it there. Look at how the servants describe her. It says, And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you. So she went and even asked these men. We'll see in a moment. She didn't have to do that. But she asked, Can I gather here among the reapers, among the sheaves? So she came and hath continued even from morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. So evidently she was a good worker and she was a dedicated worker and she didn't necessarily feel entitled. She didn't get there and say, well, after all of this, somebody's got to bless me somewhere along the way. Naomi, what are you going to do to help provide for me? I was married to your son. He died, so now you have to take care of me. But she doesn't do that. She takes it on herself and she goes and she works. And she works, it says, all day except for a small rest. And that is when Boaz saw her. So we see a little bit about Ruth's life. And she had gone from being living in Moab to living in Israel. From being married to being widowed. To being a person of means, having things, to being poor without what she needed. Yet still, she went out. She tried to do her part. Now... Before we say, well, this is good, we'll just glean from that. You need to be a man of dignity and a woman who will stand up for herself and go and work and do these things. And all those things are great. But there's far more than that here. Because none of these things happen without the providence of God. And in our lives, no good, no evil, no great, and no bad things happen without the control and the providence of God. I want you to think about this, what it's going to tell us at the end of chapter 2. It's going to say that she had gathered, uh, let's see, in fact, you can look there for a moment. Look, if you would, at um, verse number 19. Okay, it says, And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today? Where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And he showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath uh, not left off his kindness to, living, <coughs> to the living, to the dead. And Naomi said uh, unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. And Ruth the Moabitess said, He said, all, uh, he said unto me also, Thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. And Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, that they may meet thee not in any other field. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of barley harvest and of the wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Uh, look, if you would, in verse 17, and it'll tell us the exact amount. 
It says, so she gleaned in the field until even and beat out that she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. Uh, just to cut the story short, that's about 28 to 30 pounds of grain or barley that she had beaten down to be able to cook. Now, we're going to get to this in a second. Some of you are, it's warm in here. We've got some people oh, we're oozing into sleep here, all right? I'm going to get to it. 28 to 30 pounds of barley. So you say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Think about it. Would that really change her life? We immediately want to look at Ruth's idea or, or Ruth's story here. And a lot of times we want to look at it and say, Ruth was desperate. Ruth was this. And she was in a terrible circumstance. And then she met Boaz who gave her all that she needed and her life changed forever. Now, if you were destitute, if you were in a new land, if you did not have a home, if you did not have what you needed, if your life was without hope, and tonight you're sitting here on the point of being broken, and I walked in with a 30-pound bag of barley, do you feel like that would change your life? Do you feel like everything would be better? But do you see how our minds work sometimes? We think, oh, Ruth was in a bad spot. Boaz gave her food and praying everything was better. But this story is worth in about far more than just a 30-pound bag of barley wheat. It is about the providence of God in Ruth's life. I want you to look, if you would, think back through these different things that have already been mentioned. It says that they arrived, in verse 22 of chapter 1, they arrived at the time of barley harvest. It just happened to get there right when barley harvest started. Then she just happened to end up in Boaz's field. She happened to be, in a way, able to be related to by marriage. We'll see why that's important. So she just happened to be at the one who could change her life. He just happened to see her when she happened to go into the house to rest. And he happened to ask a servant who had happened to hear her talk in the morning, and he happened to tell her something that made Boaz happen to think about Ruth. There's a lot of happens, right? But it didn't just happen. It was God working in their lives. And it would be easy to look at Naomi's life, and it would be easy to look at what was going on in their lives and say, think about all of the bad detailed circumstances. Had Elimelech not left Moab, maybe he wouldn't have died. If he hadn't died in Moab, maybe they would have already come back. Maybe they wouldn't have gotten married to Ruth and Orpah, so they wouldn't have stayed in Moab for 10 more years. And maybe if they hadn't stayed for 10 years, those two boys wouldn't have died. They would have been in their hometown. Maybe something else would have changed. And think about the chain of negative bad things that happened all along their way. That's how our minds often work. But what this story is trying to show us is that God is constantly working. Even through the details of misfortune, we find mercy. And what she was doing was not easy. Ruth's life had not been changed. And we kind of picture that she was walking through a barley field like it was a professionally photographed you know, kind of thing. And she's walking through the field, running her hands along the barley and the wheat and just going, no, that, that wasn't the case. This had already been reaped for the most part. They would reap all the way to the edges and to the corners. And then they would go back through and they'd do these different things. And so Ruth's out there, she gets what she can in the corner, but then they could walk throughout the field and they would find little stalks. That, you've seen the uh, different 
farm land around here, especially out towards King William Hanover. If you go far out in Verina and Chesterfield, you see these corn fields. Okay, this is not going where they have left a strip of corn up and you go through and pick them. This is after the combine runs through. You're going through picking the little bits that you can. Getting on the ground, sifting through that. Oh, is that one? Nope, that's just a weed. Is this one? Nope, that's just a stalk. Taking, oh, I found one. Take the little piece off of the end. This is hard work that Ruth is being put through. And so if you could really envision her, she still, her life does not seem that changed. But God provided for her, and He did it through a very interesting and specific way. She happens upon the field of Boaz. And why was it that she got to go glean at some random person's field? We'll take a sidestep for just a moment. This was a way, by God's law, through God's plan, to provide for the people, His people, that were in need. Why were there handfuls left for them? This was God's way that He sought to take care of impoverished people. The law, the custom, the law for these uh, Israelites was actually that the harvesters could not go back to the corners and reap the corners of the field. And then after they had reaped the main part of the field, the harvesters, the reapers, were not allowed to go back. By law, they could not go back and, and look for things that they had dropped along the way. That was there for those that were poor and in need. That was God's law toward them. Now, this is the opposite of what we think in our American capitalistic brain, that we think what is mine is mine and what is mine is not yours. And there are some merits to those things into our form of economy and government. But God taught a long time ago that His people... Think about it this way. You can jot this down this way if you want. God's covenant people were to display His covenant character to others. And nothing has changed about that today. We are under a new covenant. God's covenant people from Israel were to leave behind some of these things. They were to leave things that could be gathered. They were to take care of the poor and the needy and the widowed and the orphans. They were to be kind and graceful and merciful because God's covenant was kind and graceful and merciful. And now that we are under a new covenant through Jesus Christ, that covenant is what? Kind, grace-filled, and merciful. And now today, God's covenant people, that is you and I, are to show God's covenant character to others. How are we to do that? Very simply, much like Boaz, when we are able, we help provide. When we can, we seek to encourage. When we can protect, we protect. When we can comfort, we comfort. Notice, what, <clears throat> notice some of the things that Boaz did. He said, you stay in my field over and over. Don't go to anyone else's. I'll take care of you. The men won't touch you. They will draw water so you will be provided for. Now, Ruth didn't necessarily deserve any of this. And to this point, there's no romance mentioned or involved. I don't know what Boaz was thinking, but that really doesn't come till later in the book. This is just Boaz's kind-natured character toward her. And why is this a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that Boaz would treat her this way? Think about the things that were just mentioned of her. When he says that he are, and he already knows her story, he says, I know and I have heard in verse 11 that since your, your husband passed away, he knows that she is widowed, which was sometimes looked down upon, especially for a young, wealthy bachelor like Boaz. It would not have been someone that Boaz would have been seeking out. So she's widowed. She is poor. 
She is from, it says, the land of thy nativity. She is of a different nationality. If you dig deep into it, she is of a totally different race than he is. She is of a different gender than he is. And Boaz looks past all of those things and shows mercy and grace on top of all of it. And it's a perfect picture of what we are to be as Christians to our world. That we look past as Christians and as a church and as individuals and as families. We can look past someone's circumstances, whether they're poor or widowed or despondent, or something uh, is wrong with health, or whatever it may be. We can look past a circumstance and seek to bless people. We can look past, he says, he mentions her nationality. We can look past someone's nationality. And it is not that we, and we have to be careful sometimes as Christians, because this is the way that we think of ourselves. We think, I will be pitiful and merciful to that lowly person. No, it's that we change our mind to be like Christ, and we don't think of them as lowly in the first place. And so he looks at her and he says, doesn't matter your gender, your race, your nationality, your language, or even her original religion. He doesn't doubt. He doesn't come in and say, well, I'm not sure who you are. I don't know if I can trust you. He just lavishes mercy on her and he protects her. He provides for her. He is merciful to her. So no wonder it made an impact on her life. And no wonder when the book or when the chapter finishes, she is blessing him, speaking highly of him. Why? Because he was God's covenant people showing God's covenant character to others. So what can we learn from Boaz? Well, a lot. We can learn that when we can do good, we do it. When we can be merciful, that we are. And that these physical things of earth are not the most important, but our relationship with our God. So let's bring this, kind of uh, wrap this to a close as we, as we think about this. So Ruth says to him, okay, look at, look at verse number, uh, let's look at verse number 10. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, why have I found, why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? What can we learn from Boaz? We can learn that the Spirit of God is merciful, is grace-filled, is, it helps those that are in need. It shines a light to the eternal and to the spiritual more than the physical. And what can we learn from Ruth? We can learn a spirit of gratitude and submission. Notice she says, what have I done? What have I done to receive this grace? When's the last time that we as a group of people, as individuals, as families, or as a church, sat down before the Lord and said, what, what have I done? To deserve grace. What have I done to deserve your favor? What have I done to deserve to be able to sit here saved under the preaching of God's word, knowing my eternal destination is a relationship in heaven with God? What have I done to deserve those things, to have heard the gospel before someone else in this world? What have I done to deserve that favor? The truth is, on my own, nothing. Ruth had come from Moab. She was widowed. She was of a different nationality, a different tongue. She didn't deserve any of this. She wasn't entitled to any of those things. And look initially at what Boaz says. Here's the answer. Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and mother in the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou excuse me, which thou knewest not heretofore. And so he just makes a statement. I have heard about you. But notice what he says about the favor and the mercy. Look at verse 12. 
And he teaches us something. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. So Boaz, yes, he sees what she has done as a person, and yes, he sees some of her nature and character, but more than that, he points her to God. And he says, the Lord rewards you. The Lord give you what you need because it is under His wings that you have come to trust. Imagine, in a way, the beauty of which Boaz, this Israelite man, turns to this Moabitess woman and says, I see that you have left and abandoned your gods and turned to the one and true living God. And, and uh, Boaz, though he could have said, well, you know, I have a lot of fields. It's really not that big of a deal. I have all these things that I could give you and you know, there's a whole lot more where that came from. And have you seen all the maidens and all the servants that I have? Have you seen all those different things? And I could provide all this thing. And it could have made it all about himself. But when he got to provide for someone, what did he say? He said, this isn't me. This is the Lord providing for you. And as we enter into this kind of holiday season, there's, there's many things that we can take from this. But I wonder if we could be a church like Boaz for these next few weeks in a world where everyone seems to turn and point to me, 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 me. And we're going to hear some things about thanks and we're going to hear some charitable things that people do around Christmas. But we should be a church that lives this way at all times and says, what can, how can I serve? How can I give? How can I provide? You know, what's interesting is that the Lord has told us not to lay up our treasure on earth. But often these things of earth are what we hold tightest to. It's what we don't want to give away. And this is not all about, well, I can give food or I can give money. It's about far more than that. Is that I can give time and I can give effort and I can give love and I can have a conversation and I can show grace to the life of someone like Boaz, not for myself, but looking at it as though I can extend the grace of God to others. And I wonder tonight, think about your own life. What can you do this week to extend the grace of God toward others? The story of Boaz and Ruth teaches us or gives us a great portrait of our relationship with our Redeemer. And that we deserve nothing before Christ but that he says, stay with me, stay in my fields, trust in me. I will prepare, I have prepared, I will protect, I will provide for you. And if we think about our own lives, when we are in need, God provided. And you say, well, I still have a need. I have a bill, I have this. But it's far deeper than just that. When we had a need that we could not solve in our sin, that we were going to be punished for the ju- through the judgment of Christ for all of eternity, when we had a need... God provided. When we were without hope, God still worked. And when she was given, when Ruth was given the opportunity, she then did her part. And now when we are given the opportunity, we can do our part as well. This turn toward hope should teach us that, yes, we can be like Boaz this week. We can be like Ruth this week. And we'll finish with this last few verses. Notice what verse 20 says. This is important. So Ruth comes back and she sees her mother-in-law and she shows what she's gleaned. She's got to be excited. Her first day out, she gets a 30-pound bag of grain and she meets this man of influence and wealth and she's got to be pretty excited about all this. 
And she comes back with the joy of grace and mercy in her heart. And when she lives with the joy of grace and mercy in her heart, what happens? Look at verse number 20. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord. Remember a chapter ago when Naomi was like, Yahweh has left me, he's abandoned me, and he's done evil to me? The joy that Ruth brought back influenced Naomi's life to the place it turned her back to her God. And I wonder this week, who can we help turn their eyes back toward their God? Who, you say, well, it's, I don't feel that joyful. I don't feel that great. We're still unworthy. We're still undeserving. And if we live with the joy that Christ gives, there may be a Naomi somewhere in our lives watching who when we finish with them this week, if we live with the joy of Christ through bitterness or through hard times, through trials and through suffering, if we live with the joy of Christ, we can turn a Naomi back to their God. We want to reach a lost and dying world. There may be a Christian brother or sister in this room tonight that you can encourage. There may be one that's not in this room tonight. Maybe a family member, maybe a neighbor, maybe a friend that you can turn toward God. Not toward yourself because of how great you are, but toward God because of the joy that He gives. And we can be maybe like Naomi, turning our own hearts back toward God. And then look at verse 23, last verse. And so she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. That's an important thing. It says, so she kept fast. God's providence guided her there, but she stayed committed to it.